begin this session of this series we're calling the seven core responsibilities of manhood, I want to make an observation from something that occurred in my house just last night. So I came home from work, as often I do, and my daughters were here. And I noticed that my daughters asked me, how was your day? Now, that's, there's nothing unique about that. You've probably experienced that in your household as well. But what I noticed was when my son entered the room and he inquired about my day, he didn't say, how was your day? He said, what did you do today? Now, why the difference in phrasing? Is it just stylistic choice, uh, different words getting at the same thing? Maybe. Or maybe there is something fundamentally different about what my daughters wanted to, uh, to inquire about and what my son wanted to know. My daughters, both of them, I have a, a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, uh, they both use the same phrase. I found that interesting. How was your day? And I think what they were getting at is they want to know, what was the experience like? How do you feel about your day? Do you feel good about it? Were you frustrated? Did you have hard meetings? Uh, were you tired? You know, those kinds of things in contrast to what is foremost in my son's mind, what did you do? What did you accomplish? Now, that does not mean that women don't care about accomplishing anything and that, uh, that boys don't ever care at all about your experience. But I just wonder if there isn't something in that terminology that goes to the core of, of who we are as men. Certainly, we know as boys, as men, we love to do. Not just to be, not just to experience, but to do. And it's because it's one of the core things, core responsibilities that God has given to us as men. We are to produce. We are to be productive. I want to show you how this works out in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So we have spent some time already in Genesis chapter 1, where God says to man, rule and subdue the earth. In chapter 2, we have the creation of Adam before the creation of Eve. So the man is made before the woman. And we get a little insight into what God expects of the man even before the woman is created. So I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heavens. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Okay, so there's no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, and we know this is the male, this is Adam, because Eve comes later. He forms Adam, the man, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living 
being. Then we skip down to verse 15 and we read this. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it. There's that word again, cultivate. Now, we use the word cultivate largely in our day to describe uh, growing a relationship. We talk about cultivating our relationship with our spouse or with our children, that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's an agricultural term, and it's very appropriate for a garden setting, but it means more broadly to produce. See, God put Adam in this garden, and he didn't simply say, hey, enjoy. He didn't say, sit around, twiddle your thumbs, and watch. He said, do something. Cultivate it. God gave him a running start. There were already plants and, and animals around, but he had to then take it and make something of it. And, and the Garden of Eden was just one small parcel of land compared to the whole world. And remember, man is called to rule and subdue the entire earth. So Adam has to get after it and produce something. He, he's got these, uh, the, the, the grapevines, but God did not promise that those grapevines would continue to produce grapes without Adam getting busy and getting to work. Adam was supposed to do that. And we see that this is exactly what happens as the story unfolds. So God created Adam, then he created Eve, and the two together now were to rule and subdue the earth and, and cultivate. So she's his partner. She's his helpmate. This is why God created the woman to come alongside the man and help him be productive. That's, that's her role as, as a wife, at least. And, and then we get into chapter 3, and we see the fall. So where Adam and Eve sinned against God, and we remember that part of the curse upon Adam was that his work would be harder. There was already work. That's what cultivate means. That's what it means to produce. He was already called to work, but now it's not all going to be fruitful labor. Some of it is going to be fruitless. Some of it is going to come up against obstacles. There's going to be thorns and thistles and rotten fruit and, and disease and decay and insects and all the things that make work hard in a garden. But the command is the same. The call is the same. Produce, cultivate. But because of your sin, Adam, now it's going to require far more toil and labor to produce things that, that won't last and that are not as good as they could have been. That's the fall. That's, that's what happens in, in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we have the birth of Adam's sons, Cain and Abel. And we remember the story that the majority of chapter 4 is bound up in this battle between Cain and Abel. And especially from Cain's perspective, he's jealous, he's bitter at Abel because God receives and accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he refuses to receive Cain's sacrifice. And the end result is that Cain murders his brother Abel. And, and that's the climax, that's the, the, the centerpiece of chapter 4. But for our purposes, it's important to understand the essential responsibilities of manhood are assumed and demonstrated in Genesis chapter 4. 
Do you remember the sacrifice that Cain brought to God was from the field? Why? Because Cain was a farmer. The produce, his his production, what he cultivated, were crops. And he brought some of those crops to the Lord, but he didn't bring them in faith, we are told elsewhere. Abel was not a farmer in that sense. He was a shepherd. He maintained flocks of animals. And he brought in faith the first fruits of his flock to offer to God. What I want us to see for, for our purposes here is they both had jobs to do. Cain and Abel had vocations. They had priorities. They had something they were specifically called to produce. Now, Where do you suppose they learned how to do this? We are not told. There's a whole lot that we do not learn about Adam and about Cain and Abel in the scripture. We have just a couple of of chapters uh, with these men, maybe a little bit more with Adam. But Adam, you realize, lived 930 years. And he had many more sons and daughters, we are told. But we get all the focus on Cain and Abel, and a little bit later, Seth. But let's just pull back for a minute and see what probably is the way the story unfolded. Adam was created. He's given this wife, and the two of them are told to cultivate this garden. And Adam got to work. I mean, think about it. He had years. We don't, we don't know how long it was before Cain and Abel were born. It may have been a short period of time. It may have been years. But Adam had time to learn something about raising crops. Again, God created the first plants, but then he said, now it's yours. Go make something of it. And we remember after the fall, he was actually kicked out of the Garden of Eden So he may have had to start from scratch wherever he went outside the Garden of Eden. So he had to learn to use his hands. He had to learn the importance of separating the weeds, getting rid of the weeds. He had to learn seeds and how seeds fall from the plants and how to replant them and and dig rows and, and water and fertilize and pull all this together, Adam had to learn those things, presumably. We certainly are not told that God just implanted in Adam's brain all this knowledge. I think it's most likely Adam learned how to farm land. And when Cain was born and as he grew, Adam taught Cain what he had learned from trial and error and from experience. And I believe that Adam learned to shepherd the flocks. He learned how the different animals worked. He, he, he studied them and observed them and, and uh, tried different things with them. And as Abel was born and grew up, I believe it makes sense to me that Adam taught Abel how to take care of those animals. And that those men extended beyond their themselves. Well, at least Cain did. We know that Adam or Abel, as far as we know, didn't have any, any children. But Cain did, and he had to pass on some of that knowledge to his sons. And we see this play out again in Genesis chapter 4, where we read this. Lamech took to himself two wives, he's a descendant of Cain, 
took to himself two wives. The name of one is Adah, the other was Zillah. And Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Think about that. Cain has a son, Lamech. Lamech has a son named Jabal, and he learned that we can't all have our flocks here together. So again, you think of Cain having sons and daughters and Lamech having sons and daughters, and there's starting to be more people around, and the animals are reproducing as well. So man and creature are fulfilling the mandate to reproduce, and there's more of them. And this one son of Lamech comes along and realizes if we all keep our animals here in the same region, we're going to run out of food for our animals. And they're, they're starting to, to fight together and we need to keep them separate and whatever. And, and so he moves on and he decides, you know, the best way to keep our animals healthy and prospering and have room for growth is to create portable housing. So he as part of producing and cultivating, he builds tents and creates tents for his children, his children's children over the decades and centuries as his family grows and they move around in a nomadic fashion, taking their crops with them. That's right here in the Bible, in Genesis chapter four. Uh, that's Jobal. His brother's name was Jubal, and I love this one. Jubal was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. My undergraduate degree is in music. Uh, as a major, a music major, I played classical guitar. The lyre is sort of the great-great-grandfather of the classical guitar. And here, early on in the story of mankind, a man produces musical instruments. Oh, there's so much that that says to us as human beings, as men. The arts, music, it's part of who we are. We need to gain a greater appreciation for, for paintings, for visual arts, and for music, and finer music, not just the pop stuff, but finer music as well, and the, and the creativity of instrument manufacturing or instrument production. Right here in the, at the beginning of the story, as man begins to rule and subdue the earth, and to do what God called him to do, to be productive, he makes music. Do you know how to make music at all? Have you, have you learned how to play an instrument? Uh, probably if you're like a lot of the students that I had in college, uh, you started out learning piano or guitar or something, and then uh, you just gave it off because it was too hard to practice. You would rather be doing something else. It's not too late. Maybe God hasn't gifted you with music, but maybe he has, and you should just spend some time producing music with your talents. Anyway, it's early on, some of the first men were musicians. Verse 22 says, As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. So again, way back in the beginning, a descendant of Adam begins to use metals and, and, uh, and iron and bronze and, and, and create these hard instruments for all kinds of things because that made work easier and more efficient. Because it's inherent in our, in our calling as men, it's who we are, to produce. 
Do you remember the story when Jesus said to the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing? What's the emphasis of Jesus's instruction there? Of course, it's to remind us of our utter dependence on him. We can't accomplish anything apart from Christ. But we should not interpret that as do nothing. Since apart from me, you can do nothing, don't even try to do something. No. The whole context of that passage is what? Bear fruit. Cultivate. Produce. Now, in that context, in John's gospel, it is producing disciples. It's, it's, it's making disciples and cultivating the spiritual vine. But we as men, in addition to that, are to constantly be producing and cultivating all kinds of things in this world. And it's not beneath us. It's not unholy. It's not as though there's the sacred, which is making disciples, and the secular, which is worldly and has nothing to do with God. We need to eliminate those distinctions if it says to us we shouldn't be involved in making things, making bearing fruit in this world. Absolutely, we are to bear fruit in this world. We are to produce things as men. It's part of, of who we are and what we do. We, we love it. We, we love to look at something that we made with our hands and say, I did that. There's a sense of satisfaction there. And again, the ultimate man, Jesus, experienced the same thing. In Isaiah 53, as the prophet looks ahead to the coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, we are told in Isaiah 53 that Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, the suffering servant, as he's uh, called there in that uh, prophecy in Isaiah 53, it says, he looked back on his work and was satisfied. That means the prophet is picturing Jesus after the cross, at, after the resurrection, Jesus looks back on what he accomplished on the cross. That was his work. He said over and over again, I've come to do the work the Father has given me to do. I don't do my own stuff. I do what the Father has called me to do. The Father is working till now, and I'm working. And what was that work? Well, the major work was to go to the cross. And the prophet saw that Jesus would look back on his work on the cross, and he'd be satisfied. He would be pleased with the produce pleased with the product of his labor. My brother, do you, do you have a sense of that? Does, that? does that resonate with you? Do you look at anything that you've accomplished and say, by the grace of God, I did that and, and I'm satisfied? It's what we're to do as men. The writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before Jesus, he suffered the shame of the cross. He was on a mission to complete something and on the other side of it to experience the joy of having done it. Again, that's, those are eternal things. Those are, those are the biggest category of things. But that doesn't mean the smaller categories are unimportant. As men, we're called to produce, to make things, and to look at them and be satisfied and to, be, to pursue them for the joy of accomplishing those things. 
So what, what have you produced today? What have you produced this week? What is something that did not exist until you set out to bring it into the, to existence and now it exists? We can, uh, this can be actual things you make with your hands. Maybe you're a carpenter, a woodworker, metal worker, something like that. It can be a digital thing, writing a book or a, a di graphic design or, or something like that where you're, you're producing that kind of thing. It can be music, as we talked about, and on and on the list goes. But being productive, getting things done, bringing things that didn't exist before, bearing fruit, that's all part of what it means to be a man. And we should not downplay the significance of those things. We are to produce. Think of all the things in your home, all the things that you enjoy, the indoor plumbing and, and air conditioning and, and forced air heating and your car or motorcycle, bicycles, computers, iPhones, all of these things are the products of men who are living out what God called us to do. In your job, don't think just earning a paycheck. Think about productivity. The, the wealth of our nation is counted in terms of what's called the GDP, the gross domestic product. Gross domestic product. We measure our wealth and every nation's wealth based on what is made. So I want you to think about that and look on, on the past days and weeks and look ahead and think as a man before the Lord Jesus, what can you produce that you can someday hear him say about those things, well done, good and faithful servant. Next time, we will talk about what it means to be a man and our role to protect.